This episode is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. Whether you love true crime or comedy, celebrity interviews or news, you call the shots on what's in your podcast queue. And guess what? Now you can call them on your auto insurance too with the Name Your Price tool from Progressive. It works just the way it sounds. You tell Progressive how much you want to pay for car insurance, and they'll show you coverage options that fit your budget. Get your quote today at Progressive.com to join the over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law. You must Welcome to another episode of You Must Remember This, the podcast dedicated to exploring the secret and or forgotten histories of Hollywood's first century, part of the Panoply Network. I'm your host, Karina Longworth. And today, we're bringing you the first all-male edition of our long-running series about famous people during times of war or Star Wars. Today's subject was a nobody for the first 25 years of his life. A small-time hustler and, as he would virtually brag later, a quasi-slave trader who traveled on a crest of luck, good and bad, from Australia to New Guinea to London, and finally to Los Angeles. Everything changed in 1935 when, shortly after arriving in Hollywood, the still totally unknown Errol Flynn was chosen for the lead role in an adventure epic called Captain Blood. He went from having absolutely nothing to being able to suddenly acquire anything, everything, and anyone he desired. Between 1935 and 1942, as long as he kept showing up to mug with a horse and a sword and Olivia de Havilland, as long as he let everyone think he was an Irish Iron Man and not a malaria and tuberculosis-ridden budding alcoholic from Australia, as long as he played the part assigned to him on screen and off, Errol Flynn was never told no. When he was brought to trial on rape charges in 1943, while many of his fellow male stars were off fighting World War II, the fans didn't abandon him. In fact, quite the contrary. And if the scandal put a dent in his armor at all, it was only because he increased his self-medication to cope with it. By the age of 40, Errol Flynn was washed up. He was dead at 50. And 20 years later, he was publicly accused of having been a top-secret Nazi spy during the peak of his career. Join us, won't you, for the incredible, controversial, and sometimes horrible true story of Errol Flynn.
Be kind to your mind with guided meditations from the Meditation for Women podcast. Your mental health benefits from sleeping better, releasing anxiety, and gaining clarity, all of which are benefits of meditation. And since this is Mental Health Awareness Month, give yourself the gift of meditations. All you have to do is press play and close your eyes. Listen to Meditation for Women on the free Odyssey app or wherever you get your podcasts. Errol Flynn was a Tasmanian devil, born on the island to Australian parents in 1909. He was a tennis star at 14, then spent a couple of years as an adventurer and recruiter of laborers, or as he would put it, a slave trader, in New Guinea. He bought his first yacht, and by the early 1930s, he had settled into a life of odd jobs, failed business ventures, and near-constant partying. And then the incredibly handsome Flynn was discovered on a Sydney beach and cast in an Australian film called In the Wake of the Bounty, the first film about the famed mutiny, in 1932. Sufficiently bit by the acting bug, Flynn spent the next few years acquiring capital by any means necessary, including stealing and selling the jewels of an older lady who had become his lover— And with a small bankroll, he arrived in London ready to take his acting career to the next level. He got into a theater company by presenting them with a phony list of credits and convincing them he was an Australian movie star. He was soon cast in a minor murder mystery shooting at Warner Brothers headquarters in London and was then asked to report to the Warner's mothership in Los Angeles for further assignment. On the boat over to the United States, Flynn met Lily Demita, a French movie star who had also been summoned to Burbank to work for Jack Warner. Lily Demita wouldn't give Flynn the time of day on the boat, but once they were both settled in Los Angeles, they began a volatile affair, which led to a volatile marriage. When Flynn showed up late to their one-year anniversary party, his wife greeted him by smashing a bottle of Veuve Clicquot champagne over his head. As he was going down, Flynn managed to punch his wife in the face. He felt bad about it. As he wrote in his autobiography, My Wicked Wicked Ways. My God, I thought, I've struck a woman. I told myself, whatever your faults, you're not the kind of fellow to do that, no matter what the provocation. The news made public that Flynn had beaten up his petite wife might prove the death blow to my acting career. But it didn't, because the studio covered it up putting out the phony story that Lily and Errol had crashed their station wagon when Errol swerved to avoid hitting a stray cat. The whole incident seems to have taught Flynn the lesson which seems to have guided much of his life. You don't have to examine your behavior if you get away with it. Imagine being able to indulge in any conceivable whim. And if the outcome was regrettable, a team would step in place to make sure that no one, aside from yourself and your bosses, knew that this regrettable thing had ever happened. You might start to feel like you had license to do anything, but you also might start to feel trapped in a system in which the people who kept saving you also had the power to completely ruin you. And Errol Flynn never knew any other kind of life in Hollywood, Because he earned the, shall we say, privilege of protection, thanks to the success of his very first Hollywood film. After a few months in town doing not a whole lot, 
Flynn lucked into the lead role in Captain Blood, a 17th century set swashbuckler directed by Michael Curtiz, which became a massive hit, launching the careers of both Flynn and his almost as unknown co-star, Olivia de Havilland, in the process. Over the next seven years, Flynn established himself as Hollywood's most bankable male adventure star, a hot streak which hit its highest point when Flynn embodied the outlaw hero in The Adventures of Robin Hood. Last week, we talked about how bored Olivia de Havilland got playing the damsel to Flynn's hero. Well, Flynn was bored too. He thought of himself as a serious actor, but no one else shared that opinion. What he was, was a lucrative property. As long as he never let the facade of his deliciously rogue hero persona slip. Realizing quickly that he wasn't going to get much satisfaction out of movie acting, Flynn went looking for his kicks elsewhere. Or maybe more accurately, everywhere. His hobbies can be summed up in one of his famous quips. I like my whiskey old and my women young. Rather than boast of his conquests, Flynn almost played the victim, insisting that it wasn't his fault that he was so desirable. When one of his wives complained of being made a fool of by his onset infidelities, Flynn proclaimed, If I'm sitting in my dressing room and a pretty girl comes in and pulls my zipper down, takes it out and gives it a little kiss, I'm not screwing her, I'm not doing anything, I didn't touch her. Early in his life at Warner Brothers, Flynn was walking around the lot one day when he stumbled on a drunk in a Shakespearean costume, dozing on a bench. That drunk turned out to be John Barrymore, one of the great actors of the silent era and one of Hollywood's most disastrous alcoholics of any era. Prior to becoming a film star, Barrymore had been a much-lauded Shakespearean stage actor, and as such, he had already fulfilled one of Flynn's personal ambitions. Never mind the fact that, just a couple of years earlier, a planned film of Hamlet had to be scrapped when Barrymore proved incapable of learning his lines, Flynn held Barrymore up as an idol but denied the opportunity to play anything approaching Hamlet himself, the protege ended up emulating all of the wrong things about his mentor. As Flynn's career coasted, his partying accelerated, and by the early 40s, after Flynn had been divorced by Lily Demita, Barrymore became Flynn's reliable drinking companion. The older actor had long been spiraling downward, and in the last years of his life, he was a frequent house guest of Flynn, who was one of the few stars in town still willing to aid and abet Barrymore's destructive drinking. Which is not to say that the old drunk didn't wear out his welcome at Shea Flynn. As Flynn wrote in his memoirs, Jack thought it was a waste of time to go to the bathroom if there was a window close by. During his visit, he took all the varnish off of one of my picture windows that overlooked the San Fernando Valley. One day, I complained bitterly. For God's sake, look at the varnish here. Your piss has eaten away the paint. Can't you do it somewhere else? He immediately went to the fireplace and let it go there. The smell through the room was atrocious. 
Barrymore dropped dead in late May 1942, while several of Flynn and Barrymore's friends and Warner Brothers colleagues were shooting Casablanca. And though reports vary, apparently someone came up with an idea for a prank. Incredibly, after the funeral but before the burial, the funeral home agreed to allow Barrymore's corpse to be borrowed for $200, and its borrowers, who in one version of the story were led by Humphrey Bogart and Peter Lorre, and in another version of the story by director Raoul Walsh, were able to get Barrymore's body settled in the chair at Flynn's place, where Barrymore used to sit and drink the night away. The pranksters were hiding in peaking range from the corpse when Flynn came home late from the set and headed straight for the bar, passing Barrymore on the way. Flynn gave a little nod to the dead man in the chair and started to fix himself a drink. Then, a pause, a double take. Flynn turned around. Oh my God. He whispered and slowly moved over to Barrymore and reached out to touch his old friend. His body was ice cold. Errol Flynn, Hollywood's A number one man for on-screen daring do, jumped out of his skin. And then he shouted, All right, you bastards, come on out. He offered the grave robbers a drink, but wouldn't help them take Barrymore's body back to the mortuary. It's worth noting that most of the participants in this possibly apocryphal story were in mid-1942 dividing their time between sets and bars without an apparent care in the world, in part because they were too old to join the Allied fight against the Nazis. Errol Flynn, at age 33, was not too old, but he did not enlist, and history has different explanations as to why. Many observers, some of Flynn's friends among them, have accused him of dodging the war out of some combination of cowardice and apathy. David Niven, perhaps Flynn's bestie, who shared a bachelor pad with him in the early 40s after Flynn's breakup with Lily Demita, wrote in one of his memoirs that Flynn had no loyalties, quote, no intention of being called to the colors. And yet, in August 1942, nine months after the U.S. was drawn into World War II, Flynn became a U.S. citizen. This was six months after the U.S. military had declared him ineligible for service due to his health problems, including his history of malaria and tuberculosis, various venereal diseases, and an irregular heartbeat. Some have suggested that these health impediments were ginned up or exaggerated. In 1942, the Errol Flynn who played heroes on movie screens looked every inch the hero in real life, the picture of hale and hearty masculinity. So his ineligibility to fight based on health issues seemed suspicious, to the point that J. Edgar Hoover himself, in June 1942, ordered that Flynn's medical records be checked and double-checked. But in fact, all of the ailments recorded on Flynn's charts check out. In fact, there are ample stories of Flynn collapsing on sets due to one illness or another, even before he started blacking out drunk. As is the case with so many Hollywood stars, on the outside, he was perfection. And on the inside, he was a mess. Flynn knew this, but he seems to have wanted to put his own particular talents 
to use nonetheless. Shortly after he was declared too sick to sign up, Flynn drafted a letter to President Roosevelt, suggesting a plan to put him in uniform and send him to Ireland, where he would help to secure valuable bases, as well as Irish hearts and minds, and maybe even gather a little intelligence on the side. This letter apparently went unanswered, and Flynn, apparently, shrugged his shoulders and went back to business as usual. Many of the stars who stayed home from the war ended up starring in films that somehow reflected the war or encouraged the American public to support the war. Several of Flynn's films updated his swashbuckling persona for then-current events, including Edge of Darkness, in which he played a Norwegian resistance fighter, and Desperate Journey, directed by Raoul Walsh and co-starring Ronald Reagan. But none sought to capitalize on the war so glaringly, and perhaps misguidedly, as Objective Burma. Producer Jerry Wald, looking at the success of Casablanca in 1942, wanted to make a film that would show the war in a similarly idealistic light and get Americans excited about patriotism. The only problem was, the actual Burma campaign, which began five months before Objective Burma went into production, hadn't had an American hero, or really many Americans involved at all. The assigned screenwriter called Wald and said, Look, Jerry, there are no American troops in Burma. Wald said, So what? It's only a moving picture. Released in 1945, Objective Burma was considered such a bald distortion of recent history that it was pulled from theaters in Britain amidst protests and banned there until 1952. Flynn became the butt of Burma jokes and criticism from the British for the rest of his career. With his roommate and buddy David Niven off at the front, Flynn built himself a massive house at the top of Mulholland Drive, and everyone in Hollywood soon got the memo that it was open for business 24-7. Business being boozing, drug-taking, and rampant fornicating. As Flynn put it, the place attracted a motley crowd. Pimps, sports, bums, down at the heel actors, gamblers, athletes, sightseers, process servers, phonies, queers, salesmen, everything in the world. In other words, Errol Flynn was used to seeing strangers at his door. But he didn't expect a certain visit in October 1942. The policeman who rung Flynn's doorbell told him he was under arrest for the rape of a girl named Betty Hansen. Flynn said, I've never heard of her. Betty Hansen. Who is she? Betty Hansen was a 17-year-old runaway who had left Nebraska and ended up at a Hollywood party where she met Errol Flynn. Betty drank too much, got sick, and when she went to go lie down, she said, Flynn had followed her and taken advantage of her weakened state, resulting in, as she put it, an act of intercourse. Betty's family had asked the police to look for her, and they eventually found her in a hotel in Santa Monica, where she was arrested for vagrancy and, once in juvenile hall, admitted to having been a willing participant in what the law looked at as statutory rape. In October 1942, a grand jury declined to bring charges against Flynn and the Hansen case, but the LAPD, apparently hell-bent on nailing Flynn one way or another, for one reason or another, 
dug up a dormant case based on a complaint made by the mother of a 15-year-old girl named Peggy LaRue Satterley, who had apparently been seduced aboard Flynn's yacht sometime earlier. The idea that he had raped two underage girls was news to Flynn, as he claimed in his autobiography. The mere idea of rape was unthinkable. On the contrary, where was my baseball bat to ward them off? Women banged on the doors of my house like ice drops in a hailstorm. I had to bolt the doors against them. So what the hell was this charge of rape? Someone was out to put the screws into me. Who was it? What was it? With no ready answers to those questions, Flynn needed a lawyer, and he hired Jerry Geisler. For about 40 years, Jerry Geisler was the movie colony's most notorious criminal defense attorney. He would go on to represent Robert Mitchum on charges of pot possession and Marilyn Monroe in her divorce from Joe DiMaggio. And he had already managed a miracle in the case of theater impresario Alexander Pantages, who had been convicted of raping a 17-year-old girl. Geisler forced a second trial in the Pantages case and brought in all kinds of evidence as to the teenage victim's low morals and got Pantages an acquittal. Geisler's strategy in the Flynn case was a vintage Geisler. The goal was to try to convince the jury that the two underage female accusers were, as the lawyer put it, not as unversed in the ways of the world as the district attorney's office would have the public believe. In other words, Flynn's defense strategy was to throw the burden of guilt off of the accused and onto the accuser. With Betty on the stand in a preliminary hearing, Geisler asked the alleged rape victim what she was thinking lying down in plain view of Errol Flynn. What did you think was gonna happen? Geisler asked. Just gonna take a nap? Geisler pulled a similar tactic on the other accuser. Peggy LaRue Satterley claimed she had arrived at Flynn's yacht at midnight and had immediately gone into a bedroom and taken off her clothes. When Flynn knocked on her door, dressed in his pajamas and asking to talk, she told him it wasn't proper, but then let him come in and sit on her bed, at which point Flynn initiated intercourse. The lawyer asked, Did you fight with him then? Peggy said, Not very much, no, sir. The lawyer pressed, Did you fight with him at all? Peggy answered, No, sir. I cried. When Geisler interrogated Peggy about her claim that Flynn had lured the girl below deck under false pretenses the following night, with intercourse once again ensuing, the lawyer asked, You did not want to protect your honor, did you? Miss Peggy Satterley responded, After that, I did not count my honor, because I had no honor anyway. After he was finished. Flynn was indicted on three charges of statutory rape. In January 1943, desperately besotted Flynn fans lined up for hours to get a seat at his trial. The jury was composed of three men and nine women, and Jerry Geisler thought this was a victory. He thought that women in 1943 would be more likely to place fault in a girl who got herself into dangerous situations 
than they would be to blame a man for taking advantage of a girl once she was in that situation. Once he had the accusers on the stand, Geisler would use circular questioning to get the girls to confirm that even if they hadn't wanted it, they did enjoy it. He interrogated the girls about other men they had supposedly been with, and Peggy Satterley was forced to answer questions about an operation she admitted to having had, which Geisler insisted was an abortion. And then he put Errol Flynn himself on the stand and had him deny that he had ever had sex with either of these girls. Somehow, the jury took all of this in and, after one day of deliberation, decided that Errol Flynn was innocent. Geisler, or Jack Warner, or somebody, sent a little girl running up to Flynn with a bouquet of flowers the minute the verdict was announced. Outside the courtroom, a beaming Flynn greeted his public, who cheered as if he had just emerged unscathed from one of the narrow scrapes in his movies. Flynn, who had reportedly spent much of the trial flirting with Nora Eddington, the 18-year-old girl who manned the courthouse snack bar, said, My confidence in American justice is completely justified. Rumors persist to this day that Flynn was set up by the famously corrupt LAPD, who felt the studios, and Warner Brothers in particular, were getting a little lax with the kickbacks and needed to be taught a lesson. It's extremely difficult to find any account of the whole affair in which Betty Hansen and Peggy Satterley are given the benefit of the doubt. The prevailing attitude even in accounts written decades later, was that these teenage girls were gold diggers. That it was virtually impossible to have sex with Errol Flynn against one's will, and that they should have considered themselves lucky to have been seduced by a matinee idol. Late in Flynn's life, he was visited at his island hideaway by Ida Lupino, who had been his lover in the mid-1940s. They were discussing his legacy, and Ida said... I'm going to tell them, you never raped anyone. They tried to rape you. Flynn responded, I must admit, old girl, I've never had to rape anyone. The rape scandal didn't have much of a negative impact on Flynn's popularity with fans. In fact, in a country starving for a respite from war news, the trial was gobbled up gleefully, as though it were entertainment in itself. But Flynn had started drinking more heavily to cope with the stress, and he had also started dabbling in drugs. In 1944, he impregnated and was forced to marry Nora Eddington, the teenage girl from the courthouse whom he met during his statutory rape trial. They lived in separate houses throughout their marriage and had a second kid before divorcing in 1949. The studio's refusal to give him anything approaching an acting challenge, coupled with the humiliation he still felt from the rape trial, were eating away at Flynn. On more than one night, his drunken self-loathing led him to thoughts of suicide. He actually put a gun in his mouth and then didn't have the guts to pull the trigger. 
With no comfort to be found at home or work, Flynn took refuge in sailing, and in 1946, deep in the throes of alcoholism, he cruised his boat to Jamaica, fell in love with the island, and bought a big chunk of it. But he needed to work to pay for it, and his addictions were making the work of being a movie star exceedingly difficult. In order to get assignments from Warner Brothers, he'd have to convince everyone around him that he was on the wagon— But then he'd find ingenious ways to hide and secretly consume booze. He'd have a crate of oranges delivered to his dressing room and would then inject each orange with a hypodermic needle full of vodka and eat oranges on set all day long. He always had the needles lying around because he bought vitamin tonics to be administered via syringe in Mexico and would make sure the Mexican pharmacists mixed a little something extra like morphine, in with the vitamins. Eventually, Flynn rode this slippery slope into full-blown heroin addiction. By 1949, Flynn was 40, divorced again, and his looks had seriously faded. He'd show up on set in the morning after having been up all night and looking it, and he was hell to work with. Directors would have to concoct elaborate games to make sure Flynn was sober enough to act when they needed him to, and sometimes those games backfired. Warner Brothers had signed Flynn to a new seven-year contract that year, but when his first film under contract, The Adventures of Don Juan, failed to hit at the box office, the studio decided Flynn was more trouble than he was worth, and Warner Brothers started trying to figure out how to distance themselves from him. The studio and the star eventually mutually agreed to end their relationship in 1932, and Flynn began dividing his time between Jamaica and his yachts. On the occasions when he did work, it was mostly in Europe and England, and often on TV. In 1954, Flynn decided to self-produce and co-bankroll a star vehicle that would silence his haters. William Tell was shot in Italy, with half the money coming from Italian investors. But about a quarter of the way through shooting, the Italian guys ran out of money. The film had to be scrapped, and Flynn, who had just been delivered an $800,000 tax bill, was suddenly financially destitute. He took an offer from Universal to appear in a film called Istanbul in 1956, simply because he needed the money, and Flynn was surprised as anyone when this mediocre part led to two perfect parts for him at this moment in time. He gives an incredible, highly physical, funny and sad performance as the drunken Mike Campbell in the Hemingway adaptation The Sun Also Rises, and then he retraced a similar path to play his old friend, John Barrymore in an adaptation of Diana Barrymore's memoir, Too Much, Too Soon. Flynn spent the last two years of his life living with a would-be actress named Beverly Adland, who was 15 when they met. He finally died of a heart attack in 1959 when he was 50. David Niven would later attribute Flynn's downfall to the fact that he, quote, didn't go off to war with the rest of us. 20 years after Flynn's death, a book was published claiming that Flynn, in fact, had been participating in the war from home in Hollywood 
but against the United States. In Errol Flynn, The Untold Story, Charles Hyam claimed, based on anonymous testimony and Hyam's interpretation of 250 U.S. government documents that he had obtained through the Freedom of Information Act, that Errol Flynn had been a Nazi spy and that Jack Warner, a passionately anti-Nazi Jew, had worked with Will Hayes of Hayes Code fame to cover up Flynn's treasonous espionage in order to protect the studio's business interests. Of course, we know that Warner Brothers was well-practiced in covering up Flynn's antics to protect its business interests. But some of Hyam's assertions, including that Flynn was able to convince Warner Brothers that his 1941 Hawaii-set film Dive Bomber be shot at locations that the Japanese wanted to scout for potential bombing— just seem highly unlikely, given Flynn's place and relative lack of power as a contract star in the Hollywood system. In making the case that Flynn was flagrantly unsupportive of the Allied cause in a time of high patriotism, Hyam claimed Flynn had never entertained the troops or appeared at the Hollywood canteen. This threw up a red flag for Tony Thomas, who had worked on two books and a documentary about Flynn, and more importantly, as a child had amassed scrapbooks about Flynn, and in those scrapbooks, there were photographs that proved Hyam's claims to be untrue. So, Tony Thomas wrote his own book, called The Spy Who Never Was, rebutting Hyam's evidence piece by piece. Before he died in 2012, Hyam admitted that he had seen no single document that proved that Errol Flynn was a Nazi spy. Rather, his argument was based on inferences made regarding a number of events. A major fulcrum in Hyam's case is Flynn's friendships with two alleged bad actors. Freddie McAvoy, an Australian playboy who was one of Flynn's favorite party companions and who reportedly became a Nazi agent in Mexico during the war. And, more significantly... Herman Urban, an Austrian doctor, sometime U.S. citizen, card-carrying Nazi, and reputed drug smuggler, who, when he was arrested in Shanghai after the war, asked the investigating officer, Did you know I was Errol Flynn's best friend? If Flynn's autobiography is to be believed at all, then Urban's boast was neither a lie nor much of an exaggeration. Flynn and Urban met on the boat Flynn took to England in 1933 at the very beginning of his acting career. And Flynn described Urban in his autobiography as... The great influence of my life. He showed me in a humorous, body, tough, rowdy way the difference between a man with no soul and a man with one. Even though neither of us were sure what a soul was. Hyam insists Urban was one of the most dangerous spies of his era. If this is true, his actions have been kept well undercover. Today, when one Googles Herman Urban, every result stems from Urban's association with Flynn. Much of Hyam's case surrounds a trip to Spain, which Flynn and Urban took together in 1937. Spain was then in civil war with the Republican loyalists battling against the fascists led by General Franco, who was supported by Hitler. 
At this point, Flynn had been in Hollywood for two years. He had spent that time working nonstop and fighting with his first wife, Lily Demita, and he needed a vacation. Urban wanted to go to Spain, he told Flynn, to assist the loyalists, but due to issues with his citizenship documentation, he would have trouble entering the country on his own. So, he convinced Flynn to come with him, and he posed as Flynn's private photographer. Flynn's time in Spain was heavily documented by the news media, who were drawn to the celebrity in the war zone. He seemed to have spent most of his 10 days in country at Warner Brothers' Barcelona offices and on tours led by the Loyalists' propaganda office. Flynn left Spain suddenly for two reasons. At some point, the Loyalist driver who had been taking Flynn and Urban around asked the movie star, Where is my money? Flynn asked Urban what was going on, and the Austrian admitted that he had convinced the Spanish Republicans that the movie star was bringing them $1 million of Hollywood money to support their cause. And this was how they had been able to get into the country. Flynn didn't like being used, but he was probably more likely moved by the other incidents. At some point on the trip, Flynn had been hit in the head with an errant brick, and Urban had published a false story apparently as a joke, that Errol Flynn was dead. This got the attention of Jack Warner, who wired his star and told him to come back to Los Angeles immediately. Apparently, after Flynn left, Urban volunteered as a medic for the Loyalist side and also took pictures which he later turned over to the Nazis. Hyam claims Urban gave some of these rolls of film to Flynn, who, Hyam claims, delivered them to Nazi agents in Paris. Tony Thomas claims the rolls of film contained pictures of Flynn and that Flynn gave them back to Urban when he was done with them. In March 1940, Flynn wrote a letter to Eleanor Roosevelt, lending his support in favor of Urban's continued U.S. citizenship. In June 1940, while in Buenos Aires on a goodwill tour, Flynn was interviewed by an ambassador in accordance with an FBI investigation on Urban, and Flynn described Urban as a screwball and told the agent that he didn't believe Urban was, or even could be, a Nazi or a spy. In October 1940, Urban spent a couple of weeks with Flynn in Hollywood, where they went out on Flynn's boat and partied. And it was the last time Urban and Flynn saw each other. Urban, at this time, was still a U.S. citizen, but he was in danger of having his citizenship revoked. So his lawyer suggested he go to Mexico while the matter was being settled. Charles Hyam says Flynn drove Urban into Mexico and that this was a treasonous offense for which Flynn should have been hanged. Tony Thomas says Flynn didn't drive Urban into Mexico and that studio records show Flynn was on set at the time and that in any event, Urban didn't need an escort into Mexico. At the time, he was still a U.S. citizen and war had not been declared, so he could cross the border freely. The following year, Urban apparently officially accepted an invitation to work for the Obware Intelligence Gathering Agency, and he was sent from Mexico to Shanghai for the duration of the war and eventually interned by the Japanese. 
So, long story short, Errol Flynn considered himself to be the close friend of two guys known to either be or at the very least have close ties to Nazis. Does this mean Errol Flynn was a Nazi spy? Maybe. For that matter, is the fact that Errol Flynn clearly liked to have sex with teenage girls evidence that he was a rapist? Based on our definition of rape today, yeah, probably. Based on the way that we handle such allegations when it comes to male celebrities today, would Errol Flynn's career have been at least temporarily interrupted if such allegations happened this year? Yes, almost definitely. But in Errol Flynn's day, there was no space for counter-narratives. No hope for them, even. There was only the dominant narrative. And when it came to stories about movie stars... The people in control were the studios. Flynn's personal narrative was one of, let's say, not entirely plausible deniability. He always maintained that he had no idea how old his accusers were when he had sex with them, if he even had sex with them, just as he maintained that if Herman Urban was a Nazi, Flynn never knew about it. At the same time, Flynn was a man who appeared to have everything, who was acquitted for a crime he says he didn't commit, and yet he was so terrifically unhappy that he proceeded to commit slow suicide via the bottle. Maybe all we know for sure is that Errol Flynn was a man who was severely out of touch with the notion that actions have consequences who spent at least the second half of his life compartmentalizing as a survival strategy, who essentially lived in a fantasy world in which what he wanted and what he wanted to believe were all that mattered. And anything else, like his Tasmanian heritage and shady past, like all those mistakes that Warner Brothers just cleaned up for him, all of it could just cease to exist. Thanks for listening to You Must Remember This. Today's episode was written, edited, and narrated by Karina Longworth. That's me. We had a special guest, Noah Segan, who played Errol Flynn. You can follow the podcast on Twitter at RememberThisPod. If you like it, please tell your friends any way that you can. And tell strangers by rating and reviewing us on iTunes. You might have heard that we have a special anniversary episode in the works. It's a call-in show where you can call our Google voice number and ask a question of me about anything, about previous episodes of the podcast, about how it's put together, about me personally, whatever you want. And I'll try to answer as many of them as possible. The deadline for participating in this is today, March 10th at 6 p.m. Pacific time. For more information about how to enter... Go to our website, you must remember this podcast.com, or check the Twitter stream. We'll be back next week with another tale from the secret and or forgotten histories of Hollywood's first century. Good night. Schizoaction.